The FDA has approved a technique for the treatment of major depression where they put a coil, an electrical coil, next to your head and they pulse it with electricity at a very high level. What it does is it stimulates a magnetic field which allows your brain to unlock the inefficient paths that it uses to communicate and allows your brain in a way to reset itself. So you're basically unplugging your brain and plugging it back in restarting yes, in a very yes in a very but in a non-dangerous way uh, this is called transcranial magnetic stimulation TNS. yeah otherwise known as magic <laughs> welcome everyone to tech by design where the richmond technology council takes you to the edge for trending tech and innovation here in richmond virginia i'm nick surface ceo of rva tech along with alex satanias ceo of shaco come join us So yeah, just jumping in. I am so excited. We are joined today by Casey Botwell. He is the CEO at NerdSense. Uh, they are a startup based here in Richmond, and they are working on tech-enabled medical devices. And as we were just hearing from Casey, military devices too. Casey, can you start with just a little bit of background about your company? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be a participant in this community. Nearsense is a small company. There are 20 of us now, so we're not as small as we once were. Uh, we're focused on building rugged medical devices. And so that's not just wearable devices, but real medical systems that work outside the hospital so that doctors can get a better understanding of patients' condition without them having to come all the way back into the hospital. As you mentioned, sometimes that's relevant in a military environment, sometimes that's relevant in a sport and fitness environment, sometimes that's relevant in a patient who just has low accessibility to healthcare. But we're not a wearables company, we're just building small, rugged medical devices that happen to be wearable. So don't think of us as more of the Fitbit and personal monitoring side, which is great technology. Think of us more like the tool we have in the intensive care unit, but small and rugged so it can be used. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Was there one part you want me to elaborate on or the whole thing? Yeah, like how how and why? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm I'm curious now. How how do you differentiate between small and rugged and wearables? Can you just go like just a two second deep dive into that? Sure. So when many people hear the word wearables, they think Apple Watch or they think Fitbit or they think like the Garmin watch that I'm wearing, which are great tools that give us an ability to measure our body's performance in our daily living. As a doctor, I know used to say, free range humans. What a free range like real people doing real stuff. What do our bodies look like? And these are great technologies that give us some insight, but they're not very rarely are they medically validated tools. And that means they haven't done a clinical study on a diverse population of subjects in a comparison to some gold standard that a doctor would use to make a diagnostic decision about your health. A tool that a doctor uses to screen or diagnose or treat you is called a medical device. That's like the FDA's definition. If it treats or diagnoses you, it's a medical device. And so there's this gap where we have patients or people who could become patients who are far away potentially from medical care, like most of us are during our daily lives, who could be at risk for something, either because of some trait endogenous to themselves, like they have some risk of heart failure, or they have some risk of COPD or something like that, or they have a risk of stroke or any, any medical condition that may cause an abrupt sort of catastrophic outcome. Uh, but they don't have any ability to get monitored. And so they're, they're out here, as we all normally live our lives, generally at risk. In the military, they're at risk for other reasons. They are otherwise healthy, but they may be in contact with some conflict. And so it's important to have some surveillance on their health in a potentially diagnostic way. 
So there's this gap between like wearable devices, which can give us some understanding of our physiology and how well our body is performing, and tools that doctors need to use to say, hey, how do I triage these people and what's the priority? In the military case, that can be pretty clear. I have seven hurt people and only four seats on the helicopter. Who do I take and when? And so there's some like triage assistance. And in the rural population, as an example in America, there is low accessibility to healthcare. Veterans live far away from the VA. Farmers in rural communities live far away from central hospitals, especially like tier one, level one trauma centers where they have like sufficient ability to care for very serious trauma. And so our objective is to build is to take these medical capabilities that doctors use already in the hospital and just make them smaller and make them much, much, much tougher so that we can send them out potentially in hospitals in a in like a aeromedical evacuation helicopter, like when the when you get airlifted to UVA or something, right? We don't need to worry about that here because we have a level one trauma center in Richmond already. But you know, we need tools. Our goal is to build tools that doctors can trust that have been medically validated that are so small that they can be with the person already. I generally tend to think that monitoring from outside the body is still really relevant and valuable, so we shouldn't throw that away if we don't have to. And there are some medical devices that measure the person's changing biology without having to go inside the body. And an electroencephalography, an EEG system they put on people who have brain injury is a good example of that. Or the system that we're building, which is an infrared spectroscopy system, shines infrared light on a couple different wavelengths and looks at the light that bounces back and can correlate from that light how much oxygen is in the tissue. So we build optical and electrical systems that are wearable and sit outside the body. The brain is an easy example to show on camera, where I can see how the underlying physiology is changing in a medically validated, in this case, military-relevant context. So Casey, what does that tell you, though? So if, if I'm either monitoring or I'm a physician... What does the the change in that physiology tell me? How does this help me provide either better care or change you know change the care that I'm giving? That's a great question. So we uh, we started. I started originally in this medical devices. So we'll talk about medical devices. I think you guys are interested in more than just medical devices, and so I'll also elaborate on who else would care about reading what's happening inside the body, and particularly the thing that's driving the body, which I think is the most interesting part, which is why I started working on the brain first. Just to stick in the brain example, when a person's head is hit the brain sloshes around inside the box and the brain has a, a bunch of different ways in which it can be hurt. But the most easily understood is a compression and then a relaxation that results in swelling. And the problem medically for that is that brain injury, neurotrauma, often gets worse even when they are in medical care because the brain continues to swell inside this constricted space. And so the ability to read outside the brain physically outside the brain, what is happening inside the skull can help doctors understand which of these neurotrauma cases is closer to reaching a critical threshold. So the brain is swelling and swelling and swelling, and all that swelling is reducing the amount of blood that can get in there. And so you risk having what's called an anoxic brain injury, so a lack of oxygen delivered to the brain. And so I could receive two traumatic brain injury injured patients and then triage them continuously as I am in route to the hospital to figure out who should have an invasive surgery where they remove part of the brain where they do some other more serious neurosurgical intervention on those people. So prioritization? or uh... Yeah, so prioritization, the medical context, they call that triage. Uh, we could also use it for something like a remote assessment. So if a patient is at risk for stroke or if a patient has stroke and has a stroke and the emergency medical technicians aren't able to diagnose that in the field because they don't have the sufficient complicated medical equipment in the hospital, they can say, 
is this stroke or is this something else? How should I treat this patient? They can go through their flowchart now with wearable diagnostics. They can differentiate, oh, it's this category of injury or it's that category of injury, and we can more rapidly get to the pharmaceutical intervention that we need. Or non-pharmaceutical, we have to do a surgical intervention. You all started in the military space, right? That was kind of the first big use case for this. How is it used in the battlefield? We started and we continue to work in brain oxygen monitoring for fighter pilots. And that's because sometimes when fighter pilots pull back on the stick, they have to pull back for a long time. Uh, if they're in a very tight turn, if they're in a tight turn for a long time, perhaps they have a dogfighting environment or perhaps they're trying to evade a missile or something, an air-to-air -air missile. And so the consequence of that is that the blood rushes to their feet and can stay in their feet for a long time. And the thing that's flying the plane, the brain, is not fed enough oxygen for, for quite a long period of time. And so they can black out, or they can gray out, or they can black out. And that obviously is an enormous risk to the person and to the mission and to the equipment. And so there are a lot of reasons why it would be nice to monitor the air crew. There are no tools right now that monitor air crew. They don't fly with the pulse ox. They fly with Garmin's if they want, but the Garmin's not tied to anything. So there are no military monitors any other aircraft. And so the U.S. military said, well, that's sort of insufficient for us to make advanced decisions, so we should probably have some monitors. The ability to have a small, rugged, wearable monitor that reads oxygen two centimeters below the skin surface, which is the brain if you put it on the forehead, but could be muscles if you put it on your muscles, is relevant for a lot of different military challenges. The military tends to take people who they make very fit, or sometimes come very fit, but usually make very fit, and push them to the edge of their fitness. Whatever their edge is, they're going to push them to the edge. And so every person is always performing right at the edge of collapse, right? Run as fast as you can, run as far as you can, fight as long as you can, carry as many people back who are hurt as you can. It's always extreme stuff, right? And so these military service members then are at enormous risk, even though they're fit for heat injury or for a musculoskeletal injury, if they do like a jump and they land their parachute wrong, now they have to walk on a broken ankle. Like, how do we triage these people? How do we care for these people? Right now, it's kind of like, I don't know, we got to work together. We're a team. You know, the old days used to be like, suck it up and be tough. But now it's like, no, we got to, we got to, we got to work together. Right? There's no way that we're going to accomplish the mission if we don't work together. And so this lets us monitor people when they're in those challenging environments. Casey, is there an AI component wherein if you wear this device, you know, in kind of, um, you know, a healthy condition or, you know, non-traumatic condition over the course of a year or two, it starts to provide you data so that uh, when monitoring, you can identify when you're redlining or, you know, potentially at risk for other things? Is, is there a, some sort of predictive AI element here? Yes, there's predictive AI on the medical side. I think that the non-medical side might be potentially more interesting to some of you guys, obviously, I can talk about the medical stuff a lot, but I think that the, I didn't mean to poo-poo the concept of human performance monitoring, just that it wasn't sufficient to make medical decisions. We're a medical device company, and so we work in the medical device space first. But the tools that we're building allow us to read people's performance when they're not hurt or before they're hurt to get a good baseline. So the AI, thank you for transitioning us, the AI can work in the medical space. It can understand if you're getting worse or potentially predict your state degradation whether your physiology, your cognitive performance, or anything like that. And AI can also, in some instances, augment your performance depending on what other systems we connect to our system. So I'll elaborate a little on that. So far, I've only told you about the ability to read the body. We work on some prototype, advanced prototype systems that allow us to change the user's state by influencing their physiology. And I have to be really specific in how I say that probably, and you guys probably have a lot of questions. There are techniques which allow us to stimulate the brain 
and to change the brain's performance. And I can elaborate a lot, but I'll let you ask a question because I think that'll be more productive. Yeah, can you elaborate a little more on how you are uh, changing the user's state? Like, what, what does that mean? That sounds very so, Black Mirror-y to me, and I'm very yeah, uncomfortable yeah. I know, that's why I have to be really careful how I say it. So the FDA has approved a technique for the treatment of major depression where they put a coil, an electrical coil, next to your head, and they pulse it with electricity. And it doesn't touch your body, but it's it's kind of like going to the dentist. You sit in a dentist-type chair, and there's a machine that sits next to you. And it's... Um, smaller than like an MRI, if you guys have ever had an MRI. It's kind of like, it's like the size of the x-ray thing that comes down when they x-ray your teeth. But it pulses this electrical activity next to your brain. And at a very high level, what it does is it stimulates a magnetic field, which allows your brain to sort of unlock the inefficient paths that it uses to communicate and allows your brain in a way to reset itself. It's not a painful process. It's a way that allows your brain to sort of like get out of the rut, so to speak. So your brain communicates all many different regions all to itself, and it can sometimes get stuck in a way in loops. So you're basically unplugging your brain and plugging it back in, restarting. Yes, in a very yes, in a very but in a non dangerous way. So that's the challenging part, right? So uh, this is called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah, otherwise known as magic. A lot of science seems like magic at that age. That's true. And I am a frontiersman, which probably looks like a, like a sorcerer, right? So, um, yeah, basically this technique called TMS is used in the treatment of major depression. So people come in with symptoms of depression and they describe anxiety and depression just like – major depression is what we call – the term for just depression, right? A person's depressed. It's called major depressive. And this technique, TMS, is used to, in a way, reset you. And it's a – it has a, an effect which has some certain durability and can last for a long time. And it allows you to kind of take a step back without like leaving your body. It's not like, you know, it's some like psychotropic drug where you leave your body or not. But there, anyway, the point is there are techniques where we can stimulate the brain to change its state. And so if we integrate that into a small wearable system, we don't do TMS because TMS is a large system. We do a another sort of complementary technique, which can be smaller. If we integrate that into our wearable system, then we can understand how the brain is performing and also how the brain can be augmented. So in one example, one of the techniques is called direct current stimulation. So we apply a a very small, like very, very small current across your skin. You don't feel it. And it, in a way, reduces the energy that your brain needs to activate. And so it can offset things like fatigue and it can boost your performance by saying, now we don't need the entire lift. We can, you know, kind of like I've raised all the boats up to here. Now we just have to lift from there. And so it's a, it's a way in which you can improve performance in a way which is non-interventional. So you don't have to go inside the brain or take any drugs to it. So Casey, uh, one, one quick follow on. So it seems like you're doing real-time monitoring. If, if I looked at the system, and, and I've never seen your system, but is it connected through some sort of Bluetooth? Like, how do you enable that re- real-time monitoring? And, and you don't have to elaborate on that if you don't want to. No, no thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I have a background in IP strategy before I started this company, so I'll elaborate on just the right amount of stuff. <laughs> um, yes, it is real-time monitoring. It can communicate over Bluetooth, but it processes all of its own data on itself. So it can work without Bluetooth. So we can record the data over Bluetooth and we can communicate with it and control it over Bluetooth if we want. But the because we were born in this austere military environment, we needed to be able to work on it some also. 
So you basically started touching on this, but like you're essentially doing edge-based processing, which which is a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, we used to do that more, but is the device mm -hmm. small enough to actually, like how big is this device that we are talking about or devices? Yeah, the medical one is probably about twice the size of my Garmin or so. I'm not showing it because that's still part of our developing IP. We haven't launched the product yet. But it's a small wearable patch. It has to be small enough to sit on the forehead by itself. And this this more comprehensive sort of augmentation platform is about as big as a headband. We read across the forehead and a little bit up in the hair. And so we need a little bit of a system to sit on the forehead. There are many other companies who make NIRS systems, what we call NIRS Sense, right? That make near infrared spectroscopy systems, but they're whole head systems. And they're amazing technologies. It can read the whole brain, but it requires you to wear a big sort of helmet. And our goal is to have uh, the lowest possible resolution so the small, the smallest system with just enough resolution that we can make the decision. So we're kind of going the opposite direction. Everybody wants like high density stuff and we want like the smallest that we can possibly make it just good enough to say, you definitely need to go to the doctor or you definitely need this. Hey, Casey, can I come back around to and kind of wrap up with the business side here of what you're doing? Um, and I'll start with foundational. Nearsense is your company, NIR. Does NIR stand for neuroinfrared? What, what is the near part of, of that? Nearsense is near infrared spectroscopy. Near so infrared, the, got it. Near infrared, yeah. So when you look at the light spectrum, there's ultraviolet light, visible light, infrared light. The these different spectra are continuous. It's basically how long the wave of the electrical wave is and the light wave, how long that wave is. Right? And in the near infrared is like just close to the visible. So it's like red and just past red. And from what I've heard so far over the last 20 minutes, we've talked about monitoring, we've talked about kind of medicinal purposes, we've talked about performance enhancing, and even augmentation. So it sounds like there's a lot of different applications for this and you know a lot of different kind of tributaries you can go down business-wise. And I noticed in your kind of your background in bio, you're also uh, head of a company called Bionica Labs. Is that... Is that to capture all the different possibilities here and with NearSense just being the, the wearable? Um, what's the overall you know, business structure and strategy that y'all are, are working towards? That's very astute, Nick. Yes, but we started actually Bionica Labs and underneath that was NearSense and NearSleep, which is a sleep application and another technology which is not related to the Nears platform. And uh, at the time, I knew that it was not possible I still know that it's not possible to be a parallel entrepreneur, but I wasn't sure which of these horses would win the first. <laughs> and so I had multiple projects happening at the same time, and NearSense is the one that we've sort of aligned behind. Uh, recently, we merged and consolidated all of those entities into NearSense Inc. On that note, why, why Richmond? Uh, so uh, Richmond is where I live, and uh, Richmond is an uh, undertapped resource where there is a latent potential to grow businesses with motivated communities of people in an environment that's not full of a lot of noise. And uh, I came from Raleigh. There is a lot of noise in Raleigh. There's a lot of signal, but there's also a lot of noise. And the signal and noise don't grow at the same rate, right? So double the signal isn't double the noise. Double the signal is like four times the noise, 16 times the noise, right? It gets, there's just a lot of noise. And so what I noticed when I moved to Richmond is that I took a lot fewer meetings and I made the same or greater progress. <laughs> so I realized that I might be able to innovate in an ecosystem where we can build a community of people um, who are motivated, but also have a quality of life that isn't full of traffic and meetings necessarily. <laughs> so, uh, also we're right close to VCU. So two of the four of us who are in Richmond came from VCU. 
Casey, we may need to circle back on uh, some economic development conversations with you because I think you you just tapped into uh, something that Alex and I have been trying to enunciate, just the uh, the efficiency, practicality, um, approachability, and simplicity that Richmond offers and how that relates to actually a business advantage. And so I, I think you kind of just summarized it there in a nice you know 90-second snippet. Thanks. I haven't tried to raise here. So in fairness, I haven't tried to raise any private funds in Richmond. So it's, it, I don't know what that You can go anywhere. You can go mm-hmm. elsewhere and bring the funds in. That's fine. That's what my strategy I think, I think given, given, the right, given the right operation or given the right business, um, you make the right connections in and outside of Richmond. That's what we So I think uh, one, of, one of the things that Nick and I speak about and, and one of the things I love about Richmond is its, it's practicality. Um, pre-pandemic, it was um, – a detriment, not a detriment, but just just one of our downfalls is people would invest in in revenue generating and or practical businesses, much like NearSense, right? Um, I, I think since the pandemic and since a lot of like the the private equity funds have essentially, I wouldn't say dried up, but um, decreased their investment and focused more on revenue generating activities, the the Richmond mentality has has kind of started to shine. So I think as you start, um, it, it becomes a little bit easier. Um, I think where I was going to go is we've only scratched the surface, no pun intended here with, with some of the technology yep. and, and some of the business cases. I, I would love to do a V2 with um, you. Casey, you've officially broken this podcast. I think it's just, you know, we try to live down here and you're trying to elevate us up to here. And it's very uncomfortable for both Alex and myself. Too much data. Too much data. <clears throat> Hopefully it still feels approachable. I mean, so the, yeah, the, I mean, then yes. the summary concept here is that we're taking medical tools and we're making them very small and very, very rugged. And that allows us to make medical decisions places where we couldn't previously make them. Nick, you said earlier that, you know, we kind of have all these threads and directions that we're going. We've got human performance, we've got medicine, we've got performance augmentation in a way that I described this past week when the, some military connections overseas were interested in our technology, what we could do with it. And doctors ask me this question all the time. All right, I can do this, now why? What should I do? Who cares? And part of that is a community answer. I'm not a physician, I'm a physicist, right? And so I've created a window to a place that we could never see before. Now, I don't know exactly what we want to look at in there, but we could never see it before, right? And so there are neurotrauma or just brain monitoring people who are interested. There are lung monitoring people who are interested. There are heart monitoring, muscle monitoring, joint monitoring people who are interested in being able to see how well the body is performing with this metric that we could never record. I've not eaten anybody else's lungs. I've just added a new line to every graph. And so... You know, we're sort of still figuring it out, right? For a startup, and it's not—it's not me, right? Like I'm—I convinced everybody to jump off the cliff and build the plane on the way down. But like, we have of the twenty of us, six of us have PhDs. Everybody is an engineer, either by training or by degree. So we're—we have a very, very deep technical bench that can push these technologies very quickly to the front. So Casey, I think my last question, as we're getting ready to wrap up, would just be like, what? what comes next? I think you and I had talked about it for education and immersive experiences and sort of that like sports performance element as well. But what's next for the company? We are a medical device company. And so the primary use of these technologies, if I'm pushing them, will be making medical decisions outside of them. It could be before the patient goes to the hospital or after the patient leaves the hospital. But there's an enormous amount of pain and suffering that I think doesn't have to be as intense or as long as it is. So if we have these tools, we can push them out to the, to the patient's homes, then we can monitor them before they suffer. Right? And there are a lot of economic reasons why insurance companies don't want to do that. There are also a lot of human reasons why we don't want people to have to suffer. Right. So our, our primary push is to make rugged medical devices that work outside the hospital. 
But there are many other ways in which I can be distracted. <laughs> so if there are applications for enhanced training or accelerated training, and we can, the concept that you, that you mentioned, Lauren, is when I said that we can read a person's brain state while they're being trained, potentially in a virtual reality environment, and either change the virtual reality environment to improve their training, their learning, their knowledge acquisition, or their, if we use just the brain oxygen as a proxy for knowledge acquisition, you can see if a person gets overwhelmed, then they stop consuming as much oxygen. If they're peaked, then they're maximally engaged. So we can you know, adjust the training content just by looking at the brain oxygen. We can also augment them by using these electrical techniques to stimulate their brain to reduce their fatigue or extend their performance duration. So there are some other ways in which we can add value. And that's sort of, like I said, I, we opened this window to a place we've never seen before. And that's why I said we're, sort of we're frontiers people. So we're kind of out there learning still. Can we can we tee up uh, an entire podcast on on human body augmentation and sports? Uh, I mean, are you are you willing to go there? Uh, we're not as good on the augmentation on the sports side. I can't make you physically stronger, but I can read your brain and prop. We. Uh, yeah, we can go there. We can talk about it. I'm, I'm curious. Not, but not I'm limited by my scientist background, right? So, like, I can't yeah, say just I'm, things I'm, that I can't just even with my creativity. Just do industry. more, Casey. I am concerned about, like, healing and tracking and monitoring and what that will do for, for the entire game, right? I mean, if somebody gets injured on the field or, or real-time monitoring, I mean, that that's – I mean, this is incredible. Um, I, I would love to just get some insight from you on that. Especially in, like, uh, high-intensity contact sports where a person has, you know – like let's say a person has a brain injury on one Sunday and they're cleared to go back in and they seem okay. But remember I said brain injury gets worse, right? And if we're not monitoring that person throughout the week, they can have another brain injury the following Sunday and have a seizure on the field, which would be terrible, right? And so there may be some ways in which we can monitor them during the day of the following weeks. I don't mean like I have to wear the silly headband while I'm in interviews with my sponsors. I mean like maybe I do a five-minute functional test in the morning and at night, or maybe I wear this thing while I'm sleeping overnight and it sees how my brain oxygen changes and says, hey, you're sleeping like a person with a brain injury and you weren't last week. And so maybe you shouldn't start on Sunday or we can make some other, you know, asset allocation, resource investment decision about where we should build and, and, and reinforce the teams. Um, but I can't put a sensor on our leg and make you run forever. Yeah. There are a bunch of exoskeleton companies. There's one in Virginia, an exoskeleton company in Virginia that could do stuff like that. But they need sensors with the sensor. But yeah, we could tee up more podcasts, man. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing here. Yeah. I love it. Well, I am so excited for our follow-up then when we can talk more about that. Um, I know that Alex and Nick are both big sports and golf players, so I'm sure they're excited to learn more. Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, thanks for hosting me. I had a lot of fun talking about this. There's a lot of, of opportunity here, and I need to figure out how to make it most useful. These conversations are to figure out where the need is. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much, Casey. Thanks, Casey.